God did many miracles in those first couple of years after I became a Christian, but I think the most important miracle that he did was he healed my marriage with Jan. And one of the passions that God gave us was to start mentoring other couples. We really had a desire to help young couples avoid the many mistakes that we had made in our marriage journey. And over the last 25 years, we have literally poured into and helped uh, hundreds of marriages with marital issues and problems. We've read literally hundreds of articles about marriage and, and the problems that people face. And one of the most surprising issues that marital people face that you might not expect is the problem of loneliness. And you might think, well, how can you live in the same house or apartment? How can you share the same bed and still be lonely? And, and I think if you really think about it a little bit more, you'll understand. Just imagine if you were feeling empty and lonely inside and, and you went down to the AT&T Center and, and saw a Spurs game and you're crammed in there with 20,000 people. That, that might distract you for a couple hours, but the mere physical presence of 20,000 people is not going to alleviate or solve your feeling of loneliness. And, and this is no small issue, folks. It is a big problem in our culture. As they've studied loneliness, Psychology Today has done over 10 articles, major articles in the last 15 years about this really growing problem. And people who are lonely have a higher rate of depression. People who are lonely have a higher rate of obesity, a higher rate of health issues, a higher rate of suicide, and they die younger than other people. And what is also interesting is that in the last 20 years, the number of people who describe themselves as lonely has gone from 20% of the population to 40% of our population say they experience loneliness. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that that last 20 years, that growth has coincided with the explosion of social media. You know, you would think that that would help, but I, I think I understand why it doesn't help. Because as the research has come in, what they have found is what seems to alleviate loneliness, what, what seems to help with it, is really only one thing, and that is the process of knowing someone and being known by that person. Knowing and being known. And I, folks, I don't care how many selfies you take, I don't care how many great plates of delicious food you post and, and telling people how awesome your evening is going, it might feel like you're letting yourself be known, but deep down you know that isn't the real you. You're, you're not really knowing and being known by other people. So the question becomes, how do we enter into that process? What do we do to know and be known so we don't have to experience this feeling of loneliness? And if you've been around Rock Hills and you've heard our teaching long enough, you know I'm not going to pull some magazine off the newsstand and cite some article in there to, to give you tips. I'm not going to cite some expert about loneliness. We believe there's one source of true truth, of all wisdom in the universe, and that is the Holy Bible. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, your word says that unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Father, there's been a lot of labor here this morning, the, the setup crew and, and the music and, and my preparation for, for this message. And, and Father, you say that's all in vain unless you are here to build things. So uh, 
Father, as one, we cry out to you, would you please be present? Would you be here today? Would, would you go amongst my friends here at Rock Hills and would, would you build strength in those who are feeling weak, Father? Would you, be, would you build hope in those who are feeling discouraged? Would you build unity and intimacy in marriages that are struggling? And, and Father, would you build a hundred other things that I can't even imagine? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are uh, beginning a new series today, Wholehearted. This is a series we're going to be teaching through the Psalms. It's interesting to me that the Psalms in the Bible is just about smack dab in the middle of your Bible, in the heart of the Bible, if you will. And we're calling this series Wholehearted for a number of reasons. There was a, a pretty significant event that's recorded in Matthew 22, where Jesus is there teaching, and, and a religious person comes up to me and says, Lord, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And Jesus looks at him and he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus himself says that, and, and then he says, all the law and all the prophets are summed up in that one command. And so Jesus himself said that this whole Bible can be summed up, if you could do it, to love God with your whole heart and love others as yourself. Then you would fulfill everything that's written in that book. The problem with most of us is we have no idea how to do that. We're living in such a superficial culture of social media and texting. A deep conversation in our minds goes something like, hey, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. What's up? What have you been doing lately? Nothing much. Okay, see you. Thanks. I mean, folks, that is not exactly deep conversation. We've lost the ability to open our hearts to other people. And the question becomes, where are we going to learn that ability? And so the Psalms is God's way of showing us how to open our hearts. There's over 150 Psalms. David himself wrote about 75 of them. Now, David was described in 1 Samuel by the prophet Samuel. He had, a, he had an encounter with God. And God said to Samuel, David is a man after my own heart. And I think what that is saying is that of all the human beings that have ever walked this earth, you want to know the person who most knew how to expose their heart, how to open their heart, how to know and be known, it's King David. And he wrote 75 of the Psalms. And in this book, it lays out heart messages. It, the, the word psalm actually comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means sacred hymn. And this is really a songbook of our faith. And I hope you will take time to spend time in the Psalms because the psalmist doesn't just sing about love for God, although that's an important theme in there. The psalmist lays his whole heart out, the, the loneliness, the frustration, the anger, the hurt that he feels in this life. And so if you want a guidebook to how to know and be known, the Psalms are the place to go, and that's why we'll be doing this series over the next few weeks. Now, today we're going to be studying Psalm 139, so I hope you'll open your Bibles to Psalm 139, and this is a Psalm of David, and what we're going to do, we're not going to look at the whole Psalm, we're going to look at the first 18 verses, and the first 18 verses are really broken up into three sections of six verses each, and those sections each describe 
an attribute or a characteristic of God. And so we're going to look at each of those sections, look at that attribute of God, and then I'm going to suggest a response to that attribute of God, that characteristic of God. You got that? So three characteristics of God and three responses I think we should have toward those characteristics. So let's get started. I think we'll have the psalm up here, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind me and before me. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, when I awake, I am still with you. Now the first characteristic I see here in in the first six verses of this psalm, verses one through six, is what we call God's omniscience. That's just a fancy word for saying God knows everything, right? He knows everything there is to know in the whole universe. And and David's laying this out. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. So God knows David completely. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. So he he knows the actions that David is taking. He he can see all the things that David is doing in his life. You perceive my thoughts from afar. He He even understands David's thoughts. And then he says, You discern my going out and my laying down. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He even knows before a decision has been made by David, before a word is even on his tongue, God knows what he's going to say. What this is really saying is God knows every decision you and I have ever made or will ever make until the end of our life. He knows them already. He knows us completely. And I tell you, as I read this, I'm a little freaked out by that because somewhere deep inside, I want to keep myself covered up. I don't want God to know me. I think most of us can't relate to how David finally ends this psalm. He says that the fact that God knows him completely, verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And I think I know the reason for that. And and that is this soft, fluffy, fluttery, emotional view we have of love. 
Our culture has bombarded us with soap operas and rom-coms and everything else. And love just seems to be this fluttery feeling that comes. Cupid shoots you with an arrow. You get it, but you have no control over it. It may go away. And folks, if that's your view of love as our culture is pushing, you can never be safe. You don't want anybody to get close to you. You don't want them to know you because you're afraid they're no longer going to feel that feeling. So we're trying to cover each other up. We're trying to put forth an image rather than our real self because we're afraid we'll get rejected and the person will no longer love us. I saw this in my relationship with Jan. We met and we started dating and Cupid's arrow hit both of us. We fell deeply in love. I loved Jan. And in retrospect, what I really loved was me. (laughs) Because when I was around Jan, she made me think I was awesome. She, She said wonderful things to me. She made me feel good. She thought I was the greatest. She just told me how awesome I was. And when I was around her, I felt awesome. And that's what I really thought love was, feeling good about myself. And then we get married. And then the train wreck hits. Because all of a sudden, she began to see a little other version of me that I'd been kept hidden. She began to see, wait a minute, you're not as awesome as I thought. You have this anger issue. I'm not sure I like that. And and by the way, what's all this harshness and, and yelling at me? And how about this stuff when we're around other people, you're flirting with all the other women? I, you know, I didn't see that side of you before. And all of a sudden, Jan's communicating that I'm not so awesome anymore, and I don't feel so good about myself. I'm falling out of love here. And of course, it's her fault, because, you know, I have a law firm, and there's 20 employees there, and I go to work every day, and those 20 employees, you know what they're telling me? I am really awesome. I'm the most awesome guy in the world. And so I begin to say, well, I think I've got this figured out. 20 people think I'm awesome. One person doesn't think I'm awesome. I think I see where the problem is. And so I moved out. And as I've said before, this is when God really grabbed a hold of me. I went on a spiritual journey, and I decided after several months to put my faith in Jesus. I made a commitment to follow him. But, you know, I still thought, I still thought that we would get a divorce because I didn't love her anymore. And over those months... I began to feel God's love for me, a love that I'd never felt before. And it was God essentially saying to me, Al, I'm not going anywhere. In Hebrews, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God knew me. He knew all my faults. He knew about my rebellion. And God said, Al, I'm not going anywhere. And the Hebrew language has a word for this. It's ahava. It's a a love of the will. And and you see, it is a much different view of love than this fluttery thing where Cupid can shoot you with an arrow because you can never be safe. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll be walking down the aisle at the grocery store, aisle six, and I see some woman, and Cupid shoots me with the arrow. Not my fault. I'm not in love with Jan anymore. I'm in love with a woman on aisle six. What a ridiculous view of love that is. And as I began to experience God's ahava love, his love of the will, the love that said, I'm not going anywhere, I was changed. But then he did something I I didn't expect. He said, Al, 
I want you to move back in, and that's the way I want you to love Jan. And I, and I had to wrestle with that for a while because I didn't love her anymore. I didn't want to be with her. But reluctantly, I moved back in. And I told her, I said, Jan, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here to stay. And we're going to work this out. Now, folks, I don't want you to romanticize that. I really don't. You're probably seeing rose petals fluttering down, hearing lullabies, little warm puppies. That isn't what I want you to see. What I want you to see is knives flying past my head. I want you to see Jan and I ripping our hair out in frustration. I want, to see, I want you to see anger and tears and pain. But something happened over the next few months. As it began to sink in that neither of us was going anywhere, that we had both decided to have this ahava, love of the will, for the first time in our lives, we began to open our hearts to each other. We began to know and be known. And so the first characteristic that we see here is God's omniscience. He knows everything about you. And here's how I want you to respond to his omniscience. I want you to return his ahava love with ahava love of your own. Say to God, God, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here. But I, if you're married, I don't want you just to do this with God. I want you to do this with your spouse. Because an amazing thing happened and will happen in your life. As Jan and I did that, as we began to, to really love God with all our heart, be wholehearted in our love toward God, that helped me be more wholehearted in my love toward Jan. And, and, and as I began to be more wholehearted in my love toward Jan, that helped me be more wholehearted in my love toward God. It was almost like cross-training, right? As I practiced with Jan, I could do it better with God. As I practiced with God, I could do it better with Jan. And so it worked together. And that is the beauty and the wonder of this kind of love of the will. Love God with all your heart and love your spouse with all, our, all your heart. And you will see an amazing dynamic happen as you begin to know and be known. Now let's, let's look at the second section of Scripture, uh, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And, and so David is going on and on here about th there's no way, no place he can go to get away from God. This is the second characteristic of God, and it's his omnipresence. God is everywhere. You see, God does not have a body. He does not have mass. He's not located anywhere. So, so in a sense, you could say God is nowhere. But the, the greater sense, the, the truer thing to say about God is that he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. You can't get away from him. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, if, you, if you're not connected with God, that can seem awful to you. And, and so our culture I think has three basic responses that they use to deal with this attribute of God. 
The first is to become an atheist and deny he even exists. And that's, the, that, that's where I was. That was, a, that was the, the, uh, the way I approach God. He doesn't exist, just deny he exists. And, and the thing about atheists is they go to all kinds of pains to deny God. But not only that, they hate to even be reminded that there is a God, and they try to wipe God out of the public sector, don't they? One of my favorite uh, examples of this, my sister lives in Eugene, Oregon. And in 1920, a couple years after World War I, where many, many brave Americans helped keep Europe free from the Germans, this is World War I now, they erected a 50-foot metal cross on Spencer's Butte, one of the highest hills on one side of town. For 70 years, that cross sat on Spencer's Butte, no problem at all. But in the 1990s, a group of the atheists decided this is the most horrible thing in the world. This was so offensive that no one could possibly exist with that cross sitting up there. And so they began litigation to get that cross torn down. To this day, they're still litigating in various courts. They spent 25 years of energy trying to have this cross removed. That's the kind of energy that they're expending to deny that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere. They don't want to even be reminded with a cross on a mountain. So that's one response we have. The second response a lot of people in our culture have is to turn God into a sky fairy who just sprinkles magic dust wants nothing more than to bless us, and then we all die. We're all going to be in this fairyland of heaven, all of us. The problem with that is that isn't what our scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that there will be a day when we all stand for judgment, and some of us will spend eternity with God, and some of us will choose to be separated from him. But you know what? It's not just the Christian faith that says that. Every major religion on this planet has the same view, folks. You look at Islam. They believe that only the faithful will go to be to Allah, that the infidels will be banished from the presence of Allah. Judaism is just like us. The good people who follow the law will be with God. The others will not. And Hinduism and Buddhism are the same way. They both believe in reincarnation. And as you progress, if you progress finally to enlightenment, you get connected with God, but you can also go the other direction and be separated from God. So there's no major religion in the world that teaches that we're all going to be with God, but that has become a new paradigm, a new view of God. And I believe it's because of the omnipresence of God that people are starting to believe this. So that's the next characteristic, his omnipresence. Now, how do I want you all to react? How do I want you to respond? You see, we tend to be kind of one-dimensional in our view of things as human beings. So some people think, okay, God's the sky fairy sprinkling fairy dust, and we're all going to go to fantasy land when we die. And others think, no, God is this mean judgmental, horrible God, and, and he, ha- he loves nothing better than to punish us. Well, I don't know about the mean, but he is a judgmental God. He has justice. And so what I want you to do is try to hold two views of God in tension. The tension between God is described in the scripture. God is love. But he's also a God of justice. How do we reconcile that tension? How do we reconcile the fact that a God of justice can declare to some people, you are not guilty, and allow them to come to heaven? And let me see if I can put that sort of in a context. Let's suppose that some murderer murdered your spouse, and it was in front of 
hundreds of people, and there was a trial of the case. And those hundred witnesses came and testified, and the DNA, and the ballistics, and every single piece of evidence proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person had murdered your spouse. And at the end of the trial, the judge banged his gavel and said, not guilty. You would be outraged. You'd want to kill the judge. You'd say, you're the most corrupt, unjust judge in the history of jurisprudence. But folks, isn't that what God does? Every eyewitness, everyone that can line up, God has seen everything you've ever done. He can say without doubt that you deserve the sentence of guilty. And yet Paul, in the great letter to the Romans, says that God is just, and he's a justifier of people. Justifier is just a fancy uh, biblical term for saying that he finds us not guilty. And, And you can almost hear the joy in Paul's voice as he says, God has found a way to be just and the justifier to find us not guilty. And how do you hold that in tension? Folks, that's called the gospel. You see, God in his omnipotence, and we're going to get to his omnipotence next, his his all-powerfulness, devised a way. He could not compromise his justice. He did not want to compromise his love. How could he deal with us? How could he love us despite his justice? And so what God did is that he himself came to earth in the person of Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he went to the cross to pay the debt for sin. And what the gospel says is, if you accept that gift, if you put your faith in what Jesus did for you, all your sin, all the rebellion that you have ever done and will ever done was placed on Jesus at that moment. And Jesus paid your penalty. And God poured out his wrath and his judgment and his punishment upon Jesus, satisfying his justice. And so God could then declare us, since all our sin went on to Jesus and he took our punishment, he could then declare us not guilty. But there was one other step. Jesus' perfect life was in God's omnipotence and his all-powerfulness assigned to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be walking around heaven like Jesus saying that he was without sin, cast a first stone, okay? Somehow, when God assigns us his perfect life, we keep our personality. So we get Jesus' perfection, but we will retain who we are. And folks, that is the gospel. God is just and the justifier, someone who can declare you not guilty if you put your faith in what Jesus did. And folks, if you've never done that, why not do that today? Why not say, yes, Father, I give you my whole heart and I will follow you as best I can. And I accept the gift that Jesus did, just Jesus dying uh, accomplished on our behalf. All right, the third and final characteristic, and I've already mentioned it, is omnipotence. And this is uh, in uh, verse, uh, let's see, 13 through 18. And this is what the scripture says. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of, of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. What is so amazing about this is where it says that David can discern the thoughts of God. You have to think for a moment what an amazing power that was that our creator designed us to be able to receive the very thoughts of the God of the universe. That takes omnipotent power. He is all-powerful and, and can do things like that. Let me see if I can put that into a little bit of context, okay? Many of us have this little device. It's pretty miraculous, right? It's called the cell phone. Now, whether you realize it or not, right now, thousands and thousands of electromagnetic waves are going through this room. TV waves and radio waves and phone waves. But, you know, my device was designed to only respond to one electromagnetic wave, and that's if someone dials my number. So if they dial my number, the call goes to a cell phone tower, it bounces off the cell, cell phone. Robert Manning. Hello, Robert. Look, I told you, quit bothering me. Quit begging me to be your friend. It's truly pathetic, man. I'm not going to be your friend, all right? And by the way, the sound this morning has been pretty mediocre, bro. You need to do something about... Wait. You guys are the greatest. You're the best that ever lived, okay? Don't ever talk trash to the sound guy, okay? But you get my drift here. It's pretty amazing that this phone has been designed to only receive one specific wave. It's pretty amazing that thousands and thousands and thousands of waves can go through this room and we don't pick up on any of them. What do we pick up on? We pick up on, if you will, the electromagnetic waves of God. You see, and that's the way he designed us. And there are many different kinds of waves. So many of us have a, have a desire and a, and a longing for beauty. And maybe that's the beauty of a song or the beauty of a poem or a symphony. And, and, and we, we engage in that and we try to find beauty. And maybe it's a, a beautiful you know, mountain scene. But you know what? Those things, although they're wonderful, they never quite satisfy. Because they're sort of vibrating in, in our being but we, were, we know deep down that we're designed for more than that. And so it's just a small echo, a small direction finder pointing us toward God and saying, yes, beauty of the mountain and, and beauty of a poem is good, but it's just a hint, a pointer toward God where ultimate beauty resides. And, and if you're like me, uh, the ultimate hedonist, I love pleasure. And so the pleasure of, of good food and good drink and, and marital intimacy, all those pleasures were designed by God. He designed us to receive electromagnetic waves, if you will, of pleasure. But you know what? The earthly pleasures never quite satisfy, do they? That's because we are designed for the, ultra, the ultimate wave of pleasure that comes only from God. 
And you can say the same thing about wisdom and, and understanding. I love to understand and learn. And I love that feeling, but, but it never quite satisfies. But God is infinite wisdom and knowledge. And what you can do right now is understand that God is all-powerful, omnipotent. He has designed you to receive these waves. And how, here's how I want you to respond. I want you to respond by ordering your life in a way that allows you to pick up those waves from God more fully and more often. And how do you do that? Well, one of the greatest ways is by reading this book. This book has God's very thoughts. It describes God. You'll see his character. If you spend time in the Bible, you'll get some of those waves of God's goodness and beauty and wonder. And that will be satisfying. But you can also come worship. There's something about worshiping God within a group. God instructs us to do that because we see, we see aspects of him that we see nowhere else. You can spend time in quiet and prayer. Sometimes when we quiet ourselves down, and this is one of the things that Jan is so good at and, and helping guide people as a spiritual director to quiet themselves and, and hear the, the waves of God come into their life. There's so many ways we can do that. And I want to really recommend that you just spend 15 minutes a day in the word, in prayer. There will be nothing, nothing where you can put effort in that will be a greater return than spending time with God because you were designed in your inmost being to respond to his waves. You know, we, we just don't see many examples of a hava, of, of knowing and being known in this world. I, I did see one. It was years ago as a young lawyer. I, I was trying one of, the, one of the first Honda three-wheeler cases in the state of Texas. You see, the Honda three-wheeler was one of the most dangerous products ever put on the market. Uh, there was tens of thousands of people getting seriously injured and maimed on, you probably remember the all-terrain vehicle with three wheels. Well, there were several design flaws that, as I got into it were just totally avoidable. They had these big, bouncy, bulbous tires that bounced like basketball, so people would just suddenly hit a bump and flip over. They, did, they, they should have made those tires smaller and thinner and harder. They didn't have a, uh, any shock absorbers. So you hit something, you'd get into this trampoline effect, and the bounce would actually get higher and higher. They didn't have a differential. There were several design flaws in those vehicles that made them the most dangerous vehicle, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, ever designed by man. And so I'm representing a client who had been hit a bump, and the bike had flipped over and landed on him and left him a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And, and my engineers are explaining all these issues with the Honda three-wheeler. And so I go to trial, and, and I'm putting on evidence. And of course, Honda's position is, no, these, these are perfectly safe. There's nothing wrong with these vehicles. Just the way they come off the, the assembly line, no one should get hurt if they operate them right. Well, through a lot of digging, my private investigator found a guy named Mike Chester. Turns out Mike was actually on the Honda-sponsored race team. And as I began to talk to Mike, he was no longer on the team. What I found out is he would never race a Honda three-wheeler that came off stock off the line. You know what he would do? He would change the tires, make them smaller and harder. He would install himself shock absorbers. He would put a differential in the wheel. All these changes our engineers were saying were needed, he did himself in order to race. 
But what made Mike's testimony so poignant when he came to testify in trial is that he had gone to Montana for a race up there. Honda was supposed to transport his customized three-wheeler to compete in the race, and the trailer didn't get there. And so he borrowed a friend's stock Honda three-wheeler. During the course of the race, he flipped and was paralyzed from the neck down. And I got to know Mike over the course of several weeks and his wife, Christy, and he came to testify. And you could not hear a pin drop as he testified about how he modified these bikes exactly the way my experts were saying they needed to be. His testimony is very powerful. And that night, we were about to start the damage phase of the trial the next day. And that's where we try to describe to the jury so that they can award damages to my client how difficult it is for my client to be paralyzed from the neck down. And I get the bright idea, I want to put Christy on the stand. So I'm sitting with her quietly. It's getting kind of late at night, and you know, Mike has gone off to bed or something. I'm saying, hey, Christy, would you please testify for me tomorrow? And she starts to tear up. I said, I really need your testimony. People need to understand how horrible it is to be paralyzed from the neck down. People need to hear your story. They need to understand. They need to hear from you how this has ruined your life, essentially, and how, how this has destroyed so many hopes and dreams. And the tears got harder, and I said, please, would you do that? And she said, well, the only problem is, Al, that's not true. So what do you mean? She said, you didn't know Mike before the accident. Mike was not a Christian. Before the accident, he was arrogant. He was harsh. He was unfaithful to me. Our marriage was just about over when this accident happened. And after the accident, when he was in rehab, he returned to the faith that he had as a young boy. And something amazing happened to Mike. He changed completely. Suddenly, the old Mike I knew returned. He had joy. We began to know each other and share our hearts Mike, Mike began to, to share his deepest feelings with me, and I began to share them with him. And what I can say, Al, is over the last few years, my marriage has been a dream. It's been everything I ever could have wanted. It's, this accident was the best thing that ever happened to me. Is that what you want me to tell the jury? And I, no, no, please, do not tell the jury that. That's not, I don't want him to hear that. But, but, but the point was, it took this tragic accident for them to finally experience the greatest gift, the greatest thing we can experience on this earth, and that is to know and be known in a wholehearted way. So my prayer for you is if you are married, I pray that you will start implementing that ahava, that, that love of the will, and that you would start to know your spouse and that you would also implement it with God, and you would start to know him in a way that's consistent with our series now, in a way that truly is wholehearted. hearted